Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. Today's interview is one that is really important for me. Many of us grew up in the video game world, so they are normal for us and we can't really imagine life without them. But that's not true for everyone. The only way that many people hear about games is from news headlines or cable news contributors discussing a terrible tragedy and how the suspect played violent video games. And this show is about how games impact people. It's how I describe it, and I say that in every episode. And I've always had this fear that when I talk about this show and how it's about the impact of games, that these horrible tragedies would be the first thing that people think of. And while I've grown up with games of varying degrees of violence and been around people who have also played these games, I've never felt like I had a good answer for people who have those concerns. Enter today's guest. I speak with a couple of psychologists who have taken on this cloud of doubt and fear head on. They are the authors of the book, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. It's Drs. Chris Ferguson and Patrick Markey. As you'll hear in the interview, they take a research-based approach that moves past the rumors and the politics surrounding the topic of violence in video games. And this is important information to get out there, so I'll bring us right into the interview. One note, Dr. Markey had to leave about halfway through, so if you notice a voice disappearing, that's why. All right, I'm joined today by Dr. Chris Ferguson. He's an associate professor of psychology at Stetson University, and also by Dr. Patrick Markey. He is the director of the Interpersonal Research Laboratory. He is also a professor of psychology at Villanova University. And they are the authors of the book, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having us. What inspired the creation of Moral Combat? Um, I think that what really starts, Chris and I have been doing research for, I mean, decades, I guess, on, on or at least a decade on this topic. And what for me, what it really was, was kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the research showed. Um, and personally, for me, what it happened was following Sandy Hook, uh, lots of people took uh, research we had done and other people had done and used it to try to argue that it was evidence that the shooter might have been influenced by playing violent video games. And that kind of scared me quite a bit that people were taking our research and using it in this manner. Um, and so we really wanted to try to just write a book that was for the general public and for researchers, too, to kind of show what we know about violent video games and what their effects might or might not be on the general public. Hmm. So so you had already done some investigations on a possible connection between violence and video games and violence in the real world. But someone else took looked at what you had done and and found different results than, or took a different conclusion from it than you had? Uh, no. In fact, if that's what would have happened, it, I think it would have been a little bit, wouldn't have perhaps made me so upset about what was going on. What 
the media, particularly media and politicians were doing was taking research done by us as well as other people. And and usually what this research would do is it'd be done in a laboratory and they'd have people, you know, play video games or nonviolent video games. Then they'd have them do some kind of mundane task, like fill out a questionnaire on how aggressive they feel. Or maybe one of the my favorite ones is see if they give people hot sauce to people who don't like hot sauce. And though, and what they find generally is people who play video games tend to show slight changes in these types of kind of very mundane types of behaviors, kind of jerkiness in a way. And they are taking that research and generalizing it to school shootings. So they are taking that and saying, because we found it here, it probably is also a cause of these horrific acts of violence. Um, and that for me was what uh, was most upsetting. Um, and I'm not sure what Chris's motivation was for joining on oh yeah the, the, i think you know pretty similar you know for the most part I, I remember going back to you know as far back as the columbine massacre in 1999 and you know kind of seeing the, the same thing I mean, it was actually kind of interesting but before that there really wasn't much research on video game violence at all and, and what existed really wasn't very consistent um and nonetheless like right after the columbine shooting in 1999 there was this kind of you know scholars were kind of coming out of the woodwork and, and making these kind of big claims about how, you know, a certain percentage of violence in society could be explained by, you know, violence in video games or television and movies. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really got interested in the, in the topic in general because there was this kind of, you know, disconnect between the amount and quality and consistency of the data and the kinds of statements that, you know, people were making in the mass media and the news media and, you know, we, we kind of expect some grandstanding from politicians and, you know, moral advocates and, you know, certain groups of people. But it really was kind of, you know, I think Patrick used the, the word disappointing, and I would agree with that, that it really was kind of disappointing to see, a, you know, a fair number of scholars coming out and making these, you know, what I would consider fairly irresponsible claims. And, and even groups like the American Psychological Association and American Academy of Pediatrics kind of, you know, backing up those really problematic claims that really couldn't be supported by evidence. I guess since we started talking about it, what in, in your book, you have a chapter about school shootings and you kind of drill down the facts of the claims of, of the influences on the people who have committed these acts in the past and, you know, what the media claims about them and then what they actually are. So, can you talk a little bit about the the disparity between those two? Sure. Um, so this is research done by us for the book, partially. Also research done in bigger projects by the Secret Service. And so you have these different research groups. And actually what's interesting about all these research groups is they come to the same conclusions on kind of, if you will, the typical profile of a school shooter. And the main thing that you find is not all that exciting for a profile. It's almost useless that... For example, the typical student, the profile of a, a school shooter tends to have been male. They tend to be teenagers. They tend to have, you know, depression. Perhaps they're a bully. It's nothing that's super surprising in the typical profile. But what most media people suggest, and you certainly would get this from reading media, is that there's a relationship between people who play lots of violent video games and school shooters. Mainly, you'd have the image that school shooters are kind of really obsessed with violent video games. And what actually is found out in all these different laboratories is that's actually not true. What you find is um, when people have looked at the uh, school shooters and went back to see about what their interests are, you find between, again, depending on the lab, about 
13 to 20 percent of school shooters had an interest in violent video games. And what's most interesting, though, if you go into the average high school and look at male adolescents and see what percent of them are interested in violent video games, you find it's closer to 70 percent. So there is a link between violent video games and school shooting, but it almost goes in the opposite direction of what we are typically told. And that's that school shooters actually show an absence of an interest. Oddly enough, they don't have as much interest as the average high school student. Yeah, that was that was a really fascinating thing to read about. And it's kind of heartbreaking to think about how the there is this image, there is this recurrence of headlines saying that there is a link between a particular shooter and a particular game. But in many of those cases, you found that those were also factually false, that even specific anecdotes about these connections were also untrue. Yeah, we, we see like, you know, the, the anecdotal issues come up with, um, you know, cases like Virginia Tech and the Sandy Hook shooting, you know, back in 2002, um, where, you know, before we even really know much of anything about the shooter, you get a lot of people just like coming out in the news media making claims about, like in Virginia Tech, it seemed to be Counter-Strike. People were claiming that Dr. Phil and, and other individuals were claiming that he played violent video games like perhaps Counter-Strike. And then with Sandy Hook, you know, there again, there were all these kind of anonymous sources that were supposedly close to the investigation talking about violence in video games. And it turned out in both of those you know, particular cases that there really wasn't any evidence that they played, you know, at least not very many violent video games, you know, with – uh, the Virginia Tech shooting, it turned out he mostly played Sonic the Hedgehog, and, and with Sandy Hook, he mostly played Dance Dance Revolution. So, um, you know, sometimes people can kind of, like, leap to these assumptions about anecdotal cases and, you know, assume that uh, there is a clearer connection with, with video games than there actually are. And even when the official investigation reports come out and kind of say, like, there really wasn't anything there uh, regarding violence in video games, it still kind of gets stuck in people's consciousness and... You know, where there is this kind of narrative about school shootings or mass shootings more generally being linked with video games, you know, people kind of look for the evidence to support that narrative and kind of avoid or just don't pay any attention to the evidence that doesn't support that that narrative. And that's that kind of concept of, you know, confirmation bias. You know, we tend to ignore evidence that doesn't back up our pre-existing beliefs about things. Yeah, it's that idea that that link is is so strong and it's those stories like that when they when you see a, a news story saying you know this horrible thing has happened and we found out this thing about this person and they played this game and they played us obsessively and those stories are very very memorable and they're very they're they can be kind of intense and that kind of shapes what people think about the connection but i feel like after you take those away that you know all of a sudden the other pieces start falling into place that that connection really isn't there. It was all, you know, as you describe in the book, a moral panic. Can you talk a little bit about what constitutes a, a moral panic and how they happen? Yes, yeah, a good question. You want to handle that one, Patrick? Or? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, there's a, a long history of, of moral panics and Chris is more the historian and knowing about the, the <laughs> older ones of printing presses and so forth uh, that have been around. But, where we see it mostly is in things that are popular among youths that typically older people haven't adopted yet. And so 
the prime historical examples that I, I think of are comic books in the 50s, rock and roll music in the 80s, the satanic panic, uh, and then more recently video games. And now probably it's looking like the next moral panic is cell phones. Um, and usually what it is, it's uh, researchers kind of sometimes jump the gun on what they have found. It becomes sensationalized by the media. Politicians pick up on it. And it kind of just has this life cycle of its own uh, that goes well beyond the data um, that exists uh, to to back it up. And I always just find it interesting that when you look back historically, it's always the thing that we're worried about the younger people doing. And but then as those younger people get older, they worry about the next generation of what those younger people are doing. So every generation thinks they're fine, but we always think the kids are crazy and that whatever the new thing is, that's what's going to destroy society. Yeah, we have to remember, too, that, you know, certain groups, you know, even if they're acting in good faith and, you know, I don't think you would say that people are acting in bad faith necessarily, but certain groups do kind of, you know, benefit or profit from moral panics. You know, you know, politicians can look like they're doing something about a perceived problem. They're protecting kids. You know, news media get subscriptions and they get page clicks and things like that because more sensational headlines tend to get a lot more attention. Um, but even scholars, you know, I mean, you know, it it helps to have a big pressing social issue in order to get grant funding or to get you know newspaper attention for your studies and things like that. So at least in the short term, while older adults who tend to be the audience for moral panics are still alive, you know, then then you know, there's an incentive for these groups of people to kind of support the moral panic, you know, for that particular audience of older adults. And it only really kind of goes away when that cohort of older adults dies, uh, basically. Um, and then, as, as Patrick was saying, you know, then we kind of just move over, you know, one generation and move on to the next moral panic and kind of forget about the old one. And, and you, know, you know, kind of people look back on rock music in the 80s and kind of giggle when you kind of think of the idea that Ozzy Osbourne would cause kids to commit suicide or be violent or, you know, uh, you know join Satan, you know, or something of that sort. Uh, but we still do the same thing with, with whether it's video games or 13 Reasons Why or, or something of that sort. We're really quick to blame media for perceived you know, social problems, even if the evidence really isn't there. And it is interesting that people who other researchers I've talked to who really think violent video games are are harm. Most of the time, I don't think they're lying. Like I, They really believe it. Uh, and you ask them about, well, previous moral panics. And they'll say, oh, yes, you know, the comic books, that was silly. They were wrong. Rock and roll music, yeah, that's it. But this video games, like this is the thing. Look how interactive they like. They have this is definitely it. Um, and so that's what each generation thinks that thing is gonna be the thing that's destroying the youth. Um, and everyone's so certain that it is, and just history suggests it's not. That in general, we're pretty resilient as humans. That we tend to not uh, be destroyed by these uh, 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 panics that we've had in the past. Yeah, it's really weird phenomenon. So I guess let's talk about it like on a practical level about whether there is a reason for a moral panic at all. So let's say I'm I'm a typical gamer and I play games uh, with some violence where I shoot people and maybe there's blood and possibly some gore or, you know, some uh, stressful situations. Does that have an effect on me over time? Well, I think the last part of your question, the last part of your question is the most important one is the overtime. So in the short run, yeah, right? When you play a violent video game, you get hyped up. Maybe you even get a little more aggressive while you're playing it. 
Um, and it's much like I use the analogy of, a, of watching a sad movie. If you go see a sad movie, you know, while you watch that movie, you're going to feel very sad. And that's what that's what art's designed to do is to evoke these emotions. And maybe that emotion might even stay with you for a little bit when you think back at the movie. And video games certainly can do that same thing. That's why we play them, because they change how we feel. But really, the idea that it's changing us fundamentally in our core is really not data to suggest that that's what happens. That just like that movie, if I go see a sad movie, I'll be sad in the moment, but I'm not going to have clinical depression suddenly. Just like when you play a violent video game, you might momentarily feel that moment of hype and excitement, but it's not going to turn you into a killer or anything along those lines. So in the long run, if you're worried about violent video games affecting the average person, that it's going to have some effect on them in the long run, I don't think you need to worry about that one bit. That I certainly don't worry about that, and there's no data to suggest we should be worried about that. Usually what people will suggest when there's no data in this situation, they'll say, well, why take the risk? You know, what's the point? Let's just not take the risk and do it. And that's fine, but that's not a scientifically based argument. So if people don't want to play video games because they're worried about that, that's fine. But they have to know there's really no science to back that up. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And, and, you know, we do have these, you know, we call them longitudinal studies where we follow kids over time. And, you know, the evidence from them really doesn't suggest that there is this kind of like building up effect uh, over time. You know, over, over you know, a couple of years, exposure to violent video games does not seem to predict later youth violence or bullying or dating violence or, or, or really other kinds of problems that we can think of uh, for the most part. So we don't, we don't seem to see this kind of, you know, accumulation of, uh, of effects over time. And, and I think the other thing to kind of point out is, you know, I, I think we always kind of assume that, you know, everybody responds to a form of media in the same way. And so, you know, I, 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 I agree with Patrick that, you know, of course we play video games because it changes our emotions and stuff. But, you know, it, from watching different people, you know, play different games, it also is clear that, you know, people's responses to games can be very idiosyncratic. I mean, we, you know, people respond to them in different ways, just like people respond to books in different ways or music in different ways or or the Bible and, you know, or other religious texts in, in, in different ways. And, you know, some people can play a violent video game and actually feel pretty relaxed, you know, afterward if, if they're enjoying the experience. Um, on the other hand, if it isn't something that you enjoy or the game is more frustrating, perhaps, you know, it may be something that makes you feel a little bit more agitated. But, you know, you could say the same thing about Tetris, really, you know. Um, and, and so there doesn't really seem to be anything, you know, magic about violent video games that cause different types of emotional responses than lots of other things do, you know. So, um, you know, people do get attracted to certain kinds of, you know, as as you know, Patrick was saying, because it, it can kind of hype you up and make you feel excited. Some people like those kind of games because they feel relaxed after they've had a stressful day and stuff. Um, and other people don't like them because they get frightened by them. You know, they don't like the content. It's too stressful and things like that. So, I mean, I think one of the mistakes we've made as a field is this kind of assumption that everybody responds to a form of media in more or less the same way. Maybe some people a little bit more, some people a little bit less. But, but really, I think it's more interesting to see how different people respond very differently to the same form of media and that's something we really haven't done much to examine as a research field. Yeah, like in those studies where you play a game and then you do that test afterwards with the hot sauce or or some other, you know, way of acting or forcing discomfort on somebody else, but that doesn't test for other possible responses given the opportunity like what about giving that person chocolate? or hot sauce, or, you know, any of the other range of possible mm -hmm. ways to interact with another human being, 
you know, if you set it up with only a, an aggressive response or no response, then it doesn't test the full gamut of all the th- all the ways that a game can be affecting someone. Well, yeah. and also, I, I think the other issue isn't even so much if there's alternative. I think it's the term you just use that you're saying giving hot sauce is an aggressive behavior. And I don't think that's what most people think of as an aggressive behavior. Like, and this is not, they're not holding people down and pouring it down their throats. Like, let's be very clear. They're making tacos <laughs> and they're putting a little more hot sauce on it. So, I mean, yeah, you might not want people to play, make tacos for you after they're done playing a violent video game, but this is not what we think of as aggressive behavior. And to me, it's when we use these proxy measurements of kind of, kind of jerkiness. Again, that's what they're measuring and suggest that that tells us anything about the violence we're really worried about. So, we're worried about school shootings. We're worried about bullying. We're worried about people being beat up. These are what we're worried about when we talk about violent video games, typically. And so that was always, to me, was the biggest fault in all this research. Even And there's lots of methodological issues in the research that we can go into. But even if we take the research on its face value, at the end of the day, they're just predicting hot sauce, answers on questionnaires, these very subjective or very non-threatening measures of kind of aggressive slash jerkiness behavior. And I think that is, to me, what the fundamental flaw is in generalizing these studies to what as a society we care about. One way that I've, I've seen the argument about uh, video game violence evolve very slightly that some people will concede that a video game isn't likely to have an effect on a normal human playing a normal amount. But they might say, well, what about people who have mental conditions? What about people who play obsessively? Do video games, violent video games, could they possibly exacerbate other issues that could then lead to real-world violence? We, we don't seem to see any, like, you know, consistent evidence for that belief. Now, in, in fairness, of course, there weren't a lot of studies looking specifically at, you know, individuals with sort of pre-existing mental health issues, but there have been a couple. And, you know, and, and we did one, you know, at Stetson University looking at teens with pre-existing depression and ADHD. And and just with like with other teens, we're not able to find any evidence that, you know, exposing kids with these types of, you know, pre-existing conditions resulted in them becoming any more, you know, violent or bullying or, or aggressive in their real lives. And there was another study that was done in Missouri that looked at young adults with sort of autism spectrum disorders. And I think that was kind of motivated by the Sandy Hook shooting a little bit because, you know, it was thought that he had uh, Asperger's disorder. Um, and, and once again, there was no evidence to suggest that individuals with a pre-existing autism spectrum disorder became more aggressive when they played um, you know, violent video games. So, so it seems like at least at the moment, there really isn't this evidence for there being this kind of, you know, at risk population. Um, now, if, you, if you're kind of like talking about like lightning strikes, you know, is there like one person ever on the planet who ever got, you know, inspired by a video game? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it's never, ever happened, but, but you kind of think of like Mark Chapman was inspired by Catcher in the Rye and, you know, probably the, the form of media that inspires most criminals, at least by, their own, you know, admission is the, is a religious text like the Bible and, and, and such. So, I mean, I think if we start going down that road and saying someone somewhere ever, you know, claimed to be inspired by, you know, Grand Theft Auto, then we're going to actually find very quickly that there's a huge range of media, most of which the average person values, that we'd also have to get rid of because some criminal somewhere ever 
has claimed to be, uh, you know, inspired by it. So, but you know, in terms of just the research data, no, we don't really see, you know, research data that would support this idea that there is a vulnerable population of individuals who's, you know, harmed in any way by playing violent video games. In the book, you talk about looking at the overall trends of real world violence, along with the the prevalence of violent video games. Can you talk about some of the methods or the data that you that you use to actually try to find any correlation between the two? Sure. This is what we call the grand theft fallacy, and it's the idea that video games are related to kind of trends in crime. And we, we really wanted to show that. So video games often get linked to school shootings, but they also get linked to crime waves and or sometimes random acts of violence that just happens not in schoolyards, but in the general uh, world. And so we wanted to track that as well. And so we got data from the FBI. We got data from um, uh, uh, from video game tracking cell services and things of that sort. And we looked for any type of pattern. So we should find some kind of bump up or some kind of change in violence that's related to either the popularity of video games across years, across months, or anything along those lines. And we tracked it all kinds of ways. We looked across different countries, um, and we looked at, you know, when video, when particular violent video games were released, like Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty. We looked at just general sales. We looked at when people were playing violent video games. Um, and we looked at, you know, again, crime and so forth. And what's interesting is no matter what method we use, we find the same story being told. Now, uh, what we tend to find here is that when video games are being played or when they're very popular, there actually tend to be dips in violent crimes and aggravated assaults and in homicides. And this remains even after we put in various – your job as a researcher is to basically find a relationship and then see if you can break it. See if there's anything you can throw in that makes it go away, if you will. And we put in all types of variables like socioeconomic status, basically anything you can think of. And we couldn't break the relationship. It certainly never became positive. Um, but it always stayed in that negative direction. And so at the end of the day, it seems to be that as more people are playing violent video games or video games in general, not just violent video games, we see dips in crime. But the other part is this isn't special for video games. When we look back at old studies that have been done on television, so Back in the day before Netflix, we knew when people were watching television shows because they had to watch them at certain times. So this is in the 70s. And what they found during that time was when violent television shows were airing, there were dips in crime. Also, violent movies. When violent movies are released, you tend to find dips in crime around movie theaters that are playing violent movies. And these are research done by economists. And so you have the same pattern across the board. And so the question is, why does that happen? And that part, we don't know for sure. But probably the best explanation for it is simply that all this violent media is targeting people who are most likely to be perpetrators of crime and victims of crime. And that's adolescent males. And so it's targeting them, but it's removing them from the general public. It's putting them in seats of movie theaters. It's having them in their living room playing games or sitting in front of their television set. So they're kind of unable, if you will, to interact with each other and get into trouble. So it's not that the games are making them less violent, people who might be predisposed to be violent, nor is it, uh, but rather it's just working by removing them from society in general and placing them in safe environments where they can't interact with each other. And the neat thing is, if we look in the future so we can see, okay, how about 
a week after a violent video game was released or a month or so forth, you don't see an eventual increase. Like when they finally are done playing, they don't go out in the streets and start murdering people or start committing aggravated assaults. So we have this dip when it's released, and then it kind of goes back to where it was at before. So basically the idea is that simply by existing and being popular, these video games are taking the hours that these that people could have been using, you know, committing crimes, and instead they're doing something else. So it's more or less just taking away that available time and using it for something that's neutral and not crime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wish there was a more, I mean, Chris, I think has, has some inkling that it might be catharsis, but I wish there was more, I mean, I wish my explanation was more exciting than that, that it just comes down to, yeah, they're home in their, in their living rooms instead of hanging out at a bar where they could get in a fight. Um, and that might be what's happened. Again, we don't know the reason why it happens yet. That's to me, that's the most parsimonious explanation for it. So catharsis, do uh, you want to talk about that? Basically the idea that that experiencing violent media helps to relieve some kind of pent-up stress that might lead to aggressive action? Yeah, sure. We, we can talk about that a little bit. So, I mean, and, and I, I actually generally, you know, agree with Patrick on this one that probably the, the easiest and most parsimonious explanation is simply this, you know, routine activities theory, this kind of like time filler um, sort of explanation, but uh, they're really, you know, if we're thinking about catharsis, there really are, you know, two sort of related theories that oftentimes get mixed up with each other. Uh, so there's catharsis theory, and there's something similar is called mood management theory. And, and I actually think the evidence is probably better for mood management theory than it is for catharsis necessarily. But with catharsis, the idea is that you have to sort of experience the emotion in order to sort of get rid of it. So the idea is that emotions kind of build up over time and need an escape valve. So with that idea, you would play a violent video game in order to get angry. Uh, and by doing so, you let out the anger in a sort of safe environment and, and therefore sort of feel better and feel calmer. Um, and, uh, and everything's kind of hunky dory. So that's kind of like the gist of catharsis theory. With mood management theory, it's a little bit different. So with mood management theory, you may go in feeling angry, but you play a video game and maybe even a violent video game because you know it's going to relax you. So unlike with catharsis theory, you don't actually have to experience any anger. The whole idea is that you're doing something fun and relaxing and it's changing your mood, you know, from being angry or stressed or frustrated or whatever you might be into a much more relaxed, happy, easygoing mood because you're doing something that, you know, you enjoy. And, and you know, at least in, you know, my impression from the literature is that the evidence for, you know, video games and even violent video games suggest that, that probably mood management is a, is a more accurate way of thinking that, you know, people come and they play, you know, games, whether they're violent games or nonviolent games, and they enjoy it and it makes them feel better. And so they leave the experience happier than they did um, you know, going in, it didn't necessarily give them this big like, bubble of anger that, you know, um, you know, it, it's like an escape valve um, for, um, you know, their anger. But but in that sense, you know, video games are really like any kind of hobby. You know, there's really nothing that's like magical about them in that sense. Um, but just like anything that people do that they enjoy, you know, if you have a stressful day engaging in something pleasant, you know, whether that's, you know, knitting or gardening or golf or just talking with your friends or video games, including violent video games, as long as you enjoy that activity, it can be a stress reducer. 
um, and can make you feel you know better than you did going into that activity. So I, th- I, th- I think that there's you know certainly some credible research to su- suggest that for people who enjoy video games, video games can work very well um, in that sense. Yeah, you point out in the book that um, because different people respond to things in different ways, for one person... Tonight on NBC... Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story... Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. Video games might be great for stress relief because it's something they're familiar with, something they enjoy. But if you took someone who didn't enjoy them and had them play games, it could lead them to be more frustrated. Just like if you hand someone knitting needles and ask them to start knitting uh, for someone without experience, that would be frustrating. Whereas for many people, it's it's a great, fantastic hobby and, and does good for them in their, their mental state. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really an important thing with with any hobby is it really, you know, being, you know, feeling like you have some ability at it and that it's satisfying for you is really, you know, key. I remember my wife one time telling me a story about, I think it was her sister, someone suggested she take up like needlepoint or something of that sort. But like after a half hour, she's ready to bend the little needles <laughs> in half and this kind of stuff because just found it so like, you know, irritating. Uh, and I don't blame her. <laughs> I think I probably would as well. So. And I think that's what happens a lot with video games, whether, you know, when, when, when people kind of look at, you know, young, ind- younger individuals at any rate, um, who are playing video games and they themselves don't like them. They don't understand the value of them. And so they, they, they sort of intuitively think that I don't like this thing. So therefore anybody who's using it must be being harmed by it. Uh, and they don't understand the value. And I think that's true when people are sort of worried about the violence. I think it's true when people are worried about the addiction issues and things like that, that, there's this kind of assumption that if something is unpleasant to me, it must damage everybody that 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 uses it. Um, but again, I think I think you can make that argument about any hobby that you know. I, I say the same thing about country music quite often. Um, I'm sure it's ruining the, the planet, um, but uh, you know, and I'm sure that there must be data somewhere to suggest that's true. I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> Another interesting topic that you talk about in the book is how playing violent video games can affect our sensitivity to real-world suffering. Can you talk about that and uh, and what you found there? Sure. I mean, we're basically talking about the concept of desensitization, the idea that, you know, being exposed to violence over and over again can make us desensitize and have less of an emotional response um, when we see other people who are hurt or suffering or something of that sort. And, and what you do tend to find is basically that, um, you know, exposure to violence in media does seem to desensitize people to violence in media. Um, so basically seeing the same thing over and over again tends to get less of an emotional reaction out of people. So that's not terribly surprising uh, for the most part. Um, and you see that with a lot of like the Saw movies. I use, use, a, use as an example quite often that, you know, each movie has to be more graphic, more gory than the one before because they know that their audience kind of got used to what happened in the first movie and it's no longer going to give them the same adrenaline, you know, jump. Uh, and so they need to do something more shocking, more extreme. 
in order to get that adrenaline jolt uh, out of their uh, their audience. The question becomes is does that jump, however, to sort of real life? Um, and the evidence suggests that no, it probably doesn't. Um, and so this, this process of desensitization tends to be very specific. So just because you watch a lot of violent movies doesn't really seem to mean that you become less empathic to real people uh, in real life. You may care less about the actual characters in other movies you watch, um, but in terms of like seeing someone in front of you being attacked or hurt or suffering, um, it doesn't seem to lessen our emotional response to real individuals um, you, know, you know, suffering. The other thing that's sort of interesting about desensitization is that there's this kind of assumption that it's always bad, and, and it can be bad, you know, if it makes us less likely to help people or things like that. But in, in some situations, being desensitized can actually be advantageous. And, we, and I use the example sometimes of like, you know, uh, EMTs or other rescue professionals, um, when they go to a accident scene, you know, where there's a serious injury or someone's life is in danger, they tend not to get very emotional about it. And it, they're desensitized, in effect, because they've seen this sort of thing over and over and over again. And in those type of situations, it's actually kind of good because, you know, not getting those emotional responses allows them to make better intellectual decisions. And that's what we want uh, from people who are, are, you know, emergency personnel and rescue workers and, uh, and, and things like that. So, so desensitization is kind of a complicated issue. But in terms of this idea that, you know, watching a lot of violent video games or violent movies is going to make us care less about people like you know care less about people in Houston right now that are you know uh, experiencing the floods or whatever else um, there doesn't seem to be evidence for that you know the the desensitization doesn't seem to jump very effectively from fictional media into real life scenarios you also talk about in the book how games can sometimes cause us to start feeling guilt for or other kinds of empathy for even virtual characters in a game. And can you talk about that and, and what effects that has? Yeah, there's actually been a couple of interesting studies kind of, kind of looking at that. And, and there's this evidence that, you know, playing video games that, you know, put us into positions where we, we may make, you know, kind of dubious moral choices, if you will, uh, seems to set up players to kind of think about that. In, in, in a weird way, it almost sounds a little bit like catharsis again, that, you know, uh, it's sort of like a safe space to explore moral conundrums, if you will. Um, but, you know, it kind of shows that people that are playing games like Grand Theft Auto V that, you know, has some parts of the story that, you know, put you into situations where you have to do things that are unethical or immoral that most of us would find to be unpleasant, that even though the gamers, you know, kind of enjoy the game, once they're done playing, they seem to spend more time thinking about morality and the rightfulness and wrongfulness of you know the actions that they engage in in the game. This is a sort of idea of moral moral reflection, which is generally thought of as being a good thing. You know, we're kind of thinking about morals and what's right and what's not right. Um, you know, to do. Um, and you certainly can see, like you were talking about this idea that you know people do sometimes develop a certain amount of like you know caring and empathy for characters in games just like they do characters in books or movies or, or other sorts of things so people actually can sometimes you know get attached to character fictional characters it's usually not as powerful of course as attachment to real life people in our real lives um, but you can find that and particularly where people do have these kind of attachments to characters um, you know there was some data that came out of like the walking dead video game for instance that found that you know um, at least from some of this rough data 
that people tended to make moral choices that were morally positive, even if they were not the most advantageous choices for their own character uh, in the game. Um, so people are kind of like, you know, looking at video games oftentimes as, as, as places to sort of explore morality. Um, and even though, you know, of course, we could see all the YouTube videos of people that do horrible, horrible things in some of these games. It seems like the majority of individuals really do try to lean in the direction of, you know, making making positive moral choices. So, it, you know, again, it's not like, you know, the kind of moral education hopefully we get from our parents or our community or things like that. But it's an interesting, you know, virtual sort of safe space to, you know, spend a little bit of time exploring moral choices and thinking about them. Yeah, and so with that kind of effect of causing some kind of moral reflection in a way that's almost the opposite of desensitization. Hardest word to say. Desensitization. Oh, gosh. Desensitization, yeah. yeah. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> that's really interesting. Yeah, actually, a couple of interviews ago, I was talking with a couple of folks who wrote a book about philosophy and video games, and that was one of the major themes of the book was talking about how games present us with these moral choices and a lot of these games are very deliberate about that and so you really can't even get around these mm -hmm. moral situations you know having you question you know what's right what's wrong you can be also doing the right thing but in different ways you know the paragon way or the renegade way so that's that's one strong trend that they found and in games is that they do ask us to to question our own actions, our own morals, our own decision-making process. It's really fascinating, and, and you found that, that that bears out in the data. That It does seem to. That's what we're seeing so far with these studies that have been coming out, is that you know, even these games, we tend to think about, like, you know, when people see like the clips of them on the news, people tend to think like, wow, that looks like morally reprehensible. And oftentimes some of these games do have you know, morally reprehensible content. But the effects, you know, seem to be very complicated. You know, we don't seem to necessarily see that people just are like machines being programmed by this content. They don't just simply mimic it, you know, without, you know, thinking about it. That, you know, for many players, it really seems to be a situation where they spend time thinking about these kind of moral conundrums. Um, you know, again, it's kind of a safe space where they can explore these types of moral decisions. But uh, but the effect seems to be for, you know, at least for the majority of players, seems to be quite positive. That it gets them to think about morality um, you know, and, and quite likely make better moral choices or more moral, you know, moral choices, whether that's in a game or in real life, um, you know, later on. So, you know, the idea that, you know, sort of the you know, more reprehensiveness about some of these games is infectious and, you know, and kids or young adults are just absorbing it without question does not seem to be borne out in research. You have a section of your book. The title of the section is this question. And it's a it's a really important question that I've spent a lot of time wondering about is, you know, you're talking about these these positive effects or a positive potential of games, but if video games teach positive skills, why don't they also teach negative ones? Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a common question. I actually don't get that question as much as I used to. Uh, and maybe people kind of, uh, I maybe, you know, I was going to say wised up, but maybe that's a little bit, you know, too harsh of a way of putting it. But um, yeah, so it was always a bad question, you know, and, and, and the reality is, is that, you know, it's, it's possible for, it's always possible for me to have one type of effect, but not another one. 
Um, and each hypothesis has to be tested individually, you know. So it's not like things balance out, you know, as some kind of like video game cosmic karma, you know, in terms of the different effects that games do or, or don't have. We have to develop hypotheses and test these hypotheses empirically and to see where the data ends up, you know, coming out. So, you know, in fairness, you know, there have been a number of both positive and negative um, hypotheses about what video games may do to players that haven't borne out um, in the the evidence base. So even if you're looking at positive effects, you know, video games don't have all the positive effects that people sometimes have suggested that they might. They have some positive effects, but not necessarily everything um, necessarily. Uh, so, so we even do sometimes see, you know, exaggerated claims about certain types of positive effects. So the idea that, you know, playing video games is going to increase your IQ or that, you know, it's going to cure grandma's Alzheimer's disease or things like that. You know, the evidence doesn't really seem to quite be there, uh, much though we might like for those things to be true. Um, you know, the evidence base doesn't seem you know, to necessarily be there. Um, but, I mean, it's kind of like asking, you know, that kind of question is always like saying, well, you know, penicillin cures my bacterial infection. Why can't it then cure my colon cancer? You know, maybe it does, but we have to test that empirically um, and see where the data, you know, bears out. What we what we do know is that, you know, at least for if you're thinking about like the negative effects in terms of aggression or violence, the data really hasn't borne out that there are these you know clear effects of violent video game playing on those types of behaviors. So that one, I would argue, is kind of done, um, you know, at this point. So we need to look at, you know, other types of hypotheses that we have, which may be either positive or negative, evaluate those individually and see where, you know, uh, the, the, the data is. Um, and that's just what science is, you know, just, you know, just because you kind of want a particular effect to be there doesn't mean that it's going to be. And uh, oftentimes, you know, we're all disappointed by something um, in that. And I understand, you know, some people might have wanted almost there to be these negative effects, um, and, uh, yeah, I would have liked to have thought that my IQ was going to go up, <laughs> you know, by playing a lot of video games. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case, you know, and that's just kind of what science is for, is to let us know whether these hypotheses are, um, you know, are true. Mm-hmm. You also talk about the, the concept of transference. Even if you do learn a skill in a video game, that doesn't mean that it's going to translate to the real world. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, we've we've seen these claims every so often. The idea that you know, and I think a lot, excuse me, a lot of it came up with um, uh, Anders Breivik, who was a mass killer in Norway, uh, and you know, he, he had you know, he'd he'd written this manifesto that was like fifteen hundred pages long, and in about like you know, two of those pages, he mentioned video games, and of course, everybody went wild. Um, and so people are kind of thinking like, well, maybe video games help train him, you know, to be this kind of like commando mass murderer. Uh, individual. And so the idea is that, you know, playing, you know, with guns in a video game is going to tr- train you to be a crack shot uh, or be efficient with weapons in, uh, in, in the real world. Um, and most people I know who've, who are actually kind of like experts with actual firearms and have also played video games tend to say that's nonsense. And, and the evidence kind of bears that out again as well. That doesn't seem to be, once again, that we you know, you can get really good at using guns in a video game, but that doesn't mean that you're going to know how to use guns very well uh, in real life. And kind of the way of thinking of that is, you know, if you were to get into an airplane and the pilot were to come over the intercom and tell you, you know, you know, welcome to this flight and I just want to let you know this is the first time I've ever been in an airplane, but I've trained on Microsoft Flight Simulator for thousands of hours. 
Um, so I've, you know, it's been a long time since I've crashed a plane in Microsoft Flight Simulator. So I'm pretty sure I've got this. Most people would, like, you know, be stampeding for the exits to get off that plane because we know that you're know, just playing a video game of flying around isn't going to teach you how to become a, an efficient pilot. Um, so it's kind of funny in a way that we would we would think this idea that playing an action-oriented video game is going to train you to become a soldier or a commando or a mass murderer or whatever, you know, any of these things necessarily. And once again, the evidence just really, you know, um, you know, wasn't there. There actually was one study that, that tried to make this connection, su- suggesting that playing a lot of violent video games would result in, you know, people being more accurate with headshots and things like that. But, but that study actually just got retracted uh, because there were some problems with the data of that study. So we're back to this position of really not having evidence of, of this idea that training in a video game will transfer uh, to real life. The game that I'm about to talk about right here is called Receiver. Uh, I couldn't remember the name at the time of the interview. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember, I wish I knew the title of the game, but there was a game that kind of the core mechanic was that it was supposed to, I don't want to say simulate, but basically you had to do all of the normal steps to actually shoot a gun as opposed to a normal game where, you know, mm. you pretty much have two buttons or three buttons you know, right. there might be aim, there might be aim, uh, shoot and reload. But in this game, you actually had to press multiple buttons and, and move okay. your mouse in a certain way to like reload. And the response to that was, wow, this is really difficult. And it's actually the, <laughs> that's actually the hardest part of the game is just to, to actually reload my gun so I can play, you know, so it yeah. kind of showed yeah. the stark difference between how, you know, someone who has tons of, experience playing FPS games, even trying to play that, the more or less the best approximation of the actual mechanics of a gun. Right. That there's a big difference between them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even with that, like you said, that the person's using the mouse, you know, to load the gun, but you know, real real guns don't have, you know, a mouse <laughs> that, you know, that, that comes with it to load the you know the shells into the the magazine and stuff. So it's still going to be a, you know, even though I think there's kind of simulating that it's a much more difficult experience uh, to manage an actual firearm, it's still going to be dif- different from actually handling a real firearm, feeling the weight in your hands and, you know, having to work the safeties and all kinds of other stuff and, uh, you know, aiming, you know, knowing how to hold your hands when you're aiming and things like that. It's all going to be different than what you're experiencing in a, in a video game. Mm-hmm. So kind of the, the big question I have is you've talked about how, Organizations like the American Psychological Association, and in the book you mentioned more uh, like the National Science Foundation and some statements by the White House of various administrations, they've all had some form of statement about there being a possibility or even a probability of Mm. video games leading to real-world violence and it being a serious issue. So if you have all these big organizations that people look up to looking at games in a certain way and if the data doesn't support that how do we move forward if if those big names are wrong and what can we do against that kind of odds to to get the truth out there and to change perception i think a big part of it you know and and again you know scholars are you know have to be you know, perhaps the primary, you know, movers for this, but certainly, you know, other people, news media, politicians, and, and the general public, 
you know, essentially have to kind of call these organizations out for, you know, spreading erroneous information. And, and sometimes that's been successful. I mean, even just last year, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics got rid of its two-hour maximum screen time limit for kids because there was no evidence to support this you know, idea that kids should only use two hours of screen time a day. There was some sort of magic number like that that we could, you know, give to parents. Uh, and that came, you know, for, because there's a lot of pressure. And all that was from the general public and parents and stuff. But a lot of it was from scholars who were pointing out that this was just, a, just a, you know, a largely made up number. Um, you know, and it took, you know, a fair amount of effort. But the AAP, you know, to their credit, you know, did finally remove that as one of their recommendations um, on screen time. So I think that, you know, sort of calling these organizations out for bad information. Uh, can you know be uh, you know be helpful? You know the APA got a lot of pushback on their video game violence you know uh, statement, um, and actually just recently you know the uh, wasn't the APA but it was uh, Division 46, which is the media psychology division of the APA, came up with a statement you know saying that you can't make these uh, comments linking violent video games to mass shootings that there's no evidence, and it's hard to say there's anything conclusive there. So. Yeah, so we're seeing that there are these groups of scientists who are pushing back, that are coming out with statements of their own. Um, and stuff like that, I think, you know, can help. Because we have to remember these organizations are playing to an audience. You know, they're, they're, they're telling people what they think is going to be politically useful, not necessarily what's true. Um, and if the audience sort of demands better information, that we, you know, we say we want more honest information, don't just give us simple answers that are politically correct or politically valuable, but tell us the truth about what the data says, you know, I think, you know, I think these organizations will hopefully, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but hopefully will listen to that and maybe change their tune and, and be a little bit less quick, you know, to be, you know, as another scholar one time said, the, the little boy who, who cried screens uh, all the time, you know, uh, which is kind of where some of these organizations are right now. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think but it does require people that take the initiative and put the effort into saying, like, look, you said this, but it's wrong. Um, and the more these organizations hear that and get pushback, um, the the less likely they are to see these types of really bad policy statements as something that can be politically valuable for them. Yeah, I know that a lot of a lot of people in the, the world of games, they they're kind of tired of the whole video game violence quote-unquote debate and so they will kind of blow off the claims of the correlation and so on and but you know i think as a community trying to be trying to look at the evidence dig into it a little bit not just say oh well that doesn't fit in with what you know dr ferguson is saying so it must be wrong but taking the time talking about why it doesn't make sense i think that that'll go a long way you know towards sure towards a better uh, a better outlook right in in the book you also talk about kind of the state of the war on video games and the the effect that it has on on individuals it's not just headlines there are you know you talk about court cases where a a view of video game violence can can play a role about how some some kind of screening, or some like um, I'm forgetting the word now. Some kind of pre-screening evaluations of of people looking for potential for violence that it might include 
might include playing video games as one of the risk factors is the word I was looking for. Uh, The video games are identified as a risk factor. Uh, You talk about the the trial of of Christopher Harris in the book. Can you talk about uh, what went on there? Yeah, so that was a a multiple homicide that occurred, uh, I believe it was in Illinois. Um, And essentially what had happened is there was a family of uh, four or five uh, that were killed by, you know, an adult male uh, who is sort of associated with the family. Uh, and the evidence was clearly all indicated that he, you know, all the forensic evidence indicated he had done it. And uh, even his brother, you know, sort of, you know, t- you know, testified for the prosecution. The brother was kind of involved, but he wasn't the primary killer in that scenario. Um, so, you know, really kind of having the sort of overwhelming evidence against him, uh, this individual and his defense team, you know, sort of connected with a video game researcher and created this kind of like alternate story of what might have happened. So the alternate story was that the family's, um, I think it was 13 or 14 year old son really was the one who killed off the family and that this adult male just happened to walk in on it. And then had to defend himself by beating this kid to death with a tire iron. He hit him 52 times with a tire iron. So apparently he had to do that in self-defense. Um, and the argument was that this 14-year-old kid who died, who was one of the victims, but they're now arguing was actually the perpetrator. Uh, they were arguing that he could have committed this you know, murder of his family because he had a history of ADHD. And also, at least at some time in the past, had played violent video games now you know the analysis of his he had a yeah i think it was a playstation 2 uh, so it was going you know, pretty far back um the, the console he had was outdated already at the time of the homicide and most of the games didn't look like he played them very much in you know recent months at very least so it wasn't really clear that he played a lot of violent video games but he had played some at some point um in the past and uh, so and they get supported by this particular scholar, you know, who more or less made that same kind of argument for them that you know, he could possibly have done it because of the combination of ADHD and violent video game playing. Um, and unfortunately, the jury didn't buy it. Um, and in most of these cases where video games get brought up, the jury isn't terribly enthused. Um, so the jury didn't buy it. And, uh, the, you know, the adult uh, Christopher Harris uh, did get convicted in this case. But, you know, it's really one of these incredibly reprehensible cases of, I mean, you know, essentially trying to blame one of the victims uh, for a mass homicide and using the excuse of he played video games, uh, therefore he must have done it. Um, and, you know, a, a researcher, an academic, you know, was involved um, in doing this and supported this, you know, incredibly reprehensible, um, you know, defense. Uh, you know, so that kind of shows you that, you know, these kinds of, moral panics do have real impacts. And, you know, fortunately, you know, what I believe was the right outcome happened in this case. But, you know, there was a chance that theoretically the jury could have bought this violent video game argument and sent a mass murderer back up out out in the streets. Um, You know, so these types of moral panics, you know, do have real consequences. You know, that is perhaps a kind of an extreme example. But but even in terms of like creating unnecessary stress in families, you know, in some cases, you know, kids use video games socially and to reduce stress. So if you have parents who panic and take the games away, you actually could hurt the kids uh, to some extent. You know, so there are real consequences 
you know, that come from giving people bad information and causing them to make bad decisions on that bad information, um, you know, can't can have real impacts on, on kids and families. So this has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, I'm really excited that this book is out there and that that people now have this resource that they can look at and they can make their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. And they also have a they have a response to to the claims, to the anecdotes and the assumptions. I'm really glad that this work is out there. Uh, it was very informative, informative for me. So how can listeners find out more about about the book and about you? Yeah, this, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So the book is uh, certainly available on uh, Amazon.com and, and other related websites that uh, sell books. So you certainly can go there. Uh, and buy the book. Again, the title is uh, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong. Um, you can also check me out uh, at my website, uh, which is pretty straightforward. It's just my name.com. So it's ChristopherJFerguson.com. Um, so if you go there, you can, you know, you'll certainly see links to the book. Uh, you also see links to some of the other stuff I do. I, I write some short stories and I have a fiction book, a mystery novel as well. Uh, that you could check out there. And I also have links to a lot of the scholarly articles um, that uh, you know, we publish at Stetson University. So there's a lot of good stuff there uh, if people are curious and uh, want to check it out. I know Patrick has a website um, as well, uh, Patrick Markey. Um, I don't remember what that website is, and unfortunately he's not here to, to let us know. But I think if you just Google Patrick Markey and video games, it'll probably you know, come up as one of the top you know, results on that particular search. Yeah, great. I'll have uh, I'll have links to all that in the show notes so people can find it. Thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh, talking about this really thorny subject with me. Uh, it was a pleasure being on. I'm happy to be on anytime. I really appreciate Chris and Patrick taking the time to talk with me. In general, I really appreciate the hard work they do in an area where emotions run high. As I mentioned in the last episode, this is the last interview episode for season one of the show. So now is the perfect time, if you've been putting it off, to leave a review for the show. Now you have all of season one, all 20 episodes, for you to form an opinion about and leave a review. Let me know what you think. Reviews and feedback are really important for me as I try to figure out what I'm going to do with season two. What I'm going to improve on, what I'm going to change what direction I'm going to go. I'm really happy with season one and how it turned out, but I want to make season two even better. Let me know what you think about the show, the weak points, the strong points, what topics you want to hear. And if you go to the website, plus7intelligence.com, there you can find all the links to contact me through social media, through email, etc. And through the loot page, that's plus7intelligence.com loot. You'll find an easy link to leave a review for the show on Stitcher or on Apple Podcasts. I don't have a date set for the launch of Season 2, but there will be some mini episodes in the meantime to hold you over. So be sure to check those out for some little tidbits about the impact that games have on people. And there will also be show updates in those as well. So thanks so much for listening to Plus 7 Intelligence. Season one, the show has been really amazing. As I record this, it's been about a year since I got this microphone and had a nebulous idea 
of a podcast and no idea whether anyone would be interested in it. But now I have 20 episodes and I've met these awesome people who've done these great interviews and they're just doing really cool stuff in the world with games. And I really couldn't be happier with how it's turned out. And I'm really looking forward to season two because a strong season one means that I can make a season two that is even bigger and better. So thank you so much, listeners. I hope that the show has helped you to level up your intelligence at least a little bit. So as always, thanks for listening and also Happy New Year. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.